This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. It's the first of our So Long For Now episodes in the code speak of sport. That means retirement. No North American Nordic sport athlete has been as prolific blogging about their life as recently retired skier Noah Hoffman. He's also been a willing participant on this podcast in the past, exploring the realities of making a go of it as an American on the World Cup. At 28, Hoffman enters a brave new world beyond cross-country skiing. In this episode, we discuss what's next with Hoffman, and of course, we dive into what he's learned as a pro athlete. We connected with Hoffman while he was laying over in Cleveland on his first transcontinental road trip here in the U.S., and the first question we asked was what he had planned out on his calendar. For a guy who has lived the life of training plans for as long as he can remember, Hoffman's future looks wide open. Deliberately not making any plans and trying to figure out what I want to do and play it, almost play it day by day. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, are you good to start? I'm good. Yeah, let's do it. I think you're 28 and you're kind of retired. You are retired to explain like what exactly that means. (laughs) Right. I mean, retire it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's not like I'm retired from work. I'm just retired from my professional ski career. I think it'll be a long time before I do a cross-country ski race again, but I definitely could see doing some other endurance sports in the near-ish future, some running races or road biking races or, um, I don't know, it'll be mountain running or road running or maybe mountain biking or, I, yeah, I don't know, just having fun with it, but not, not at the same level that I was competing in cross-country skiing. I'm interested in, uh, yeah, trying to enjoy enjoy it, not take it too seriously, not train, not let training dictate my life. That's, uh, you know, I, I obviously still want to be active. Being active and being sure. outdoors makes me happy. But I also am not sure, like, that I'll be super religious about uh, getting out for a specific workout every day. But maybe I will. I don't know. I'm really trying to keep an open mind about all of that stuff. You know, going out and bouldering and going out and climbing or what have you, you know, traditionally, like back when I was doing all those things, I, I never thought of it as a workout. I was just going out to have fun. And I'm curious, do you feel like you may have to go through some deprogramming, if that makes sense? I don't know. It's almost like there was such a distinct line for me because I would do things like go bouldering and climbing or go uh, hiking or go play tennis or play club soccer that were not training. Um, and I would do them, you know, against my coach's will, uh, because I would, yeah, because it wasn't rest and it wasn't training. And so that already has a different, that those types of activities already have a different place in my mind than starting my watch and going out for a set amount of time for a workout. And, you know, even like cross country skiing with other people who are, you know, especially people who aren't cross country skiers or prefer, aren't professional cross country skiers. Like I never, I would do that at times and not consider that a workout either. And so all of that stuff, like a workout, because I've done it professionally for so long has a very specific meaning to me. So going out for a run and not having a time or a destination in mind, like, is not going to feel like a workout. It's it's simply a mental distinction. Um, But I think that it's one that is not going to be that hard for me to make because it's, it's been like, there's been a difference between those. It's not like I'm going to go out for a mountain bike ride and all of a sudden feel like I have to ride for a certain amount of time because I won't be viewing it as a workout. It really is like my starting mentality that, that seems to be different. Is it a job or is it fun? And I'm going to want to do that stuff because it's fun. Okay. So here's uh, like, so this whole thing about fun. Okay. So it's really, I got a couple of questions about that. So when can you think back and I know it's sort you've told this story a bunch and so you don't need to retell it. And I think this is true, but like you didn't make Jans as a first year U16 and your other friends did. And I think maybe you played tennis or ran cross country that fall. I forget. Uh, Played tennis. Yep. Okay. 
And so, you know, as the legend grows, you know, you were like, I'm going to make it next year. And you busted out like 500 hours or something like that as a 15 year old or transitioning from a 14 to 15 year old. You know, do you recall a time when the fun work duality was kind of blended a bit and you, it felt more like work? I'm just kind of curious, you know, how you kind of manage the, 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 the fun work barrier, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I feel like I mean, that that moment in time that you pointed to when I was disappointed not to make this trip, and that was the trigger for me to really start trying hard, that that was really that line where all of a sudden I was like, I want to do this to be successful. I don't want to do it because I love it. I want to do this because I want to be fast and I want to be good at it. And I kind of feel like from then on, it was more like training. I started, that was when I started planning my training. And throughout my career, as soon as it was written down, there was never a question that I was going to do it. Motivation in terms of getting out the door for a training session was never, ever a problem for me because the way I operate is that if, if I wrote it down, it's part of my job, I'm going to do it. That's just how I function. Um, as, as that's how I functioned as a cross country skier, and so I would say, that, yeah, that those all coincided. It was the that the not making JNs was when I started planning my training out. I started going on you know five hour solo road bike rides because that's what I thought would make me fast, and it did. And uh, I think that's when I started viewing it as something that I wanted to do. So it's not that I it's not that when it was work that I didn't want to do it. I was choosing to do sure. it all the time, right. but it wasn't the same as uh, going alpine skiing, which was, which has always been like all about fun for me, cross country ski training. And whether that was, even if it was the things that I really enjoy, like mountain biking as a form of training, if it was written down, it was still like, you know, not stopping, not doing it as a social activity, going out there and, and riding. And, and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed mountain biking more than I enjoyed roller skiing, but it was still work because that's how I viewed it as a job. Gotcha. You know, I know you were successful as a young athlete. And was there a time when your parents specifically were really had those conversations about like, hey, Noah, we want, you know, we want to, you to tell us like, is this fun? And how do you define fun? You know, obviously, they're super supportive. And yeah, I guess kind of curious what those conversations were like, as they help guide you through that that process like it's a job yeah no they that that was never a conversation that we had it was um i knew what i wanted to do and i was happy doing it i was happy working as a cross-country skier i was happy uh training every day and i was happy uh being successful and being really fit at that point you know through high school i was competing way more often i so i was competing a little bit at road biking in the summer and then cross-country running in the uh, fall and then cross-country skiing in the winter. And I loved being successful. I loved being fast. I loved feeling badass, <laughs> even doing local town races and winning like the uphill, you know, the uphill races on in the winter on the local ski areas. Like I loved winning and being successful. And so I was happy and I knew that's what I wanted. And and I, I just told my parents that. So I had, I went to a boys camp coincidentally in Hayward, Wisconsin, which is obviously the home of the Berkey. Um, I went there as a, the summer before my freshman year of high school. It was the same camp that my father went to when he was a boy. It's mostly a Jewish boys camp, summer camp, um, four weeks long. There was an eight week option, but I went for four. And then in, the winter of my freshman year of high school, I signed up for the eight-week camp in Hayward. And once I didn't make JOs, I told my parents that I didn't want to go to camp that summer and I wanted to stay home and train. And I don't know how much pushback there was, but I know they ended up having to finance, to, to swallow their deposit uh, for my place in that camp. But that I was, you know, permitted to stay home, and I did. I trained that summer, and I and I never stopped until last week. 
basically. Okay, so uh, that's a long time. I'm guessing you were like 15 years old. I graduated high school when I was 17, so I was 14. Uh, as I finished my freshman year of high school, I was 14. I turned 15 in August of that year. Amongst your cohort of Nordic athletes, I mean, you've been the most prolific on you know either I, social media, but it's even bigger than social media. But like I would say, it's long form blogging or audio content. And I'm curious, you know, is there anything in the past couple of years that you're like, you know what, you kind of wrote up a blog post, explored some aspect of your life and you're like not publishing? <laughs> That's a good question. There hasn't been a specific post, but I have I have learned from my blogging mistakes, but I tend to learn from them after I publish. The the reality is that I don't generally leave a gap between producing content and publishing content. And that has come back to bite me many times. In my mind, the worst blogging that I ever did was, I don't don't even know, I can go back and look at those posts, but it was um, a year and a half ago in the fall. I blogged, I did a series of blog posts over the course of like two to three months, and I was miserable. Um, This was the emotionally the most painful summer and fall of my life after I had broken up with uh, a girl that I had you know, dated for a long time and I had wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And on top of that, it was in the midst of that thousand hour training year, which was miserable when you start in, in a poor emotional state and then you go out and f- do a double pull for five hours on roller skis. Um, when you have nothing to think about and you're just stuck in your own head and you're, and these, these thoughts about, Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, about all, everything that's hurting you just keeps circulating and you're so alone out there. And yet, like I said, if it was written on my training plan, I was always going to do it. So I had, you know, written down this thousand hour training goal and I was out there every day, just hammering away five hours almost every single day um, by myself, uh, stuck in my own head, and it was horrible. And I, I should not have been publishing anything at that time. And instead, I did this series of writing about kind of about the emotions, about the pain I was feeling, and about skiing. And I don't even know exactly what I wrote about, but they were so negative. And they're still up. I mean, people can go find them. But uh, sure, it, like finally the people around me, uh, primarily Zach was like, you need to figure out how to differentiate your public image from what you're, from your, what you're going through, especially when what you're going through is really negative because you're not doing yourself any favors by publishing and promoting this really negative dark space that I was in. And I luckily was with enough to listen to him. Um, but that those were the le- I learned a huge lesson from that because not only were they really dark and negative, they were the least engaging, they were the least fun to read. They drove people away. They really undid a lot of the positive things. I mean, I don't think they undid. I, I mean, I I was amazed at like when I started blogging again for the Olympics this year, how many people came back um, to me and and were still there supporting me, um, and were appreciative that I was again. Uh, sharing, you know, my experiences with them. But I was not helping the cause when I was publishing from that really dark space that I was in a year and a half ago. I mean, the the, the broader question, I mean, it's, it's, and I think about this a lot because I'm covering the sport, but it's like, you guys are obviously a step ahead as athletes because you know personally what's going on and you can promote it via, you know, social media. But, you know, what is that? I'm just kind of curious what it says to you about how athletes brand themselves. And yeah, well, I will, I will speak to this only personally in that I have, I mean, I have learned so many lessons throughout my career, but one is the value of controlling the narrative and controlling the story. For instance, when I came out last year and talked about not being renamed to the U.S. ski team, I took the power away from the U.S. ski team when it came to me 
because all of a sudden I was in charge of that narrative. And it's not that I was bitter or that I felt like the decision was wrong or even that I was surprised by it, but I was able to tell the story from my perspective as opposed to letting them control the narrative and saying that we don't feel like Noah is worth it or that we don't feel like we can name him or whatever their story was going to be. By the time they named the team, it was all moot because everybody who cares about me and follows me and supports me already knew and I, and knew that this wasn't a big negative thing and that, that this was fine on all sides and it was professional and everything was great. And not that the U.S. ski team wouldn't have necessarily told that story, but I would have been lumped in with all of the other athletes that hadn't been named to the team that maybe could have been. And I found so much value in controlling the narrative. And I think that played a lot into why I chose to, to finish my career the way that I did, which was, you know, two or three weeks before the end of the season. I picked the race that I wanted to go out on, and I waited to tell everyone that I published an essay that was really heartfelt and that I worked on for a while and that made me, you know, that told my story of how I was finishing my career and let me control the narrative and let me write the ending. And consequently, you know, and my teammates played a huge factor in that and supported me in writing this ending. And they came out at home and colon and my father was able to come over and Zach was there and it was perfect. It was the perfect ending. And it was because I had control and I always wanted to be able to write my own ending. And it is a huge privilege for an athlete to do that. And I feel incredibly lucky that I was able to do so. And the ending was so perfect. Yeah. I mean, sunny day in Oslo with a billion people on the sidelines. And I mean, I only saw the images of the team waiting for you. That seemed pretty cool. It was, it was amazing. It was, I was actually quite surprised at how emotional that final lap was. And I was able to, you know, the camera showed me stopping to give my dad a hug. But prior to that, I had stopped at the feed zone and given Zach a hug. And it was just such a cool experience. Obviously, living it in the moment was amazing to have my teammates out there and making a tunnel for me and then getting to hug my father. And then, you know, um, in the finish was Patty, who had finished not that long ago, and Eric Bjornsson, who had opted not to race, but he was waiting for me. And that was just felt so good. I was kind of overwhelmed at the amount of support and that people, you know, that my teammates were showing uh, that they're going to miss me and that they care because that's, that's what everyone wants to feel, right? They want to feel wanted and loved. I mean, cross country skiing attracts a certain type of personality. Um, obviously within the subset, there's lots of different personalities, but hardworking doesn't mind being alone necessarily in their thoughts. This maybe has more to do with like my job as covering the sport. What do you see as the struggles for athletes in dealing with the media and what we might want to know after a performance, good or bad? And obviously you guys are more likely to be more verbose after you know a good performance and a negative one. Does that question make sense? Yeah, well, so I... I think that question is interesting in this particular moment because as a sport, and in particular, two athletes, Jesse and Keegan, are entering a whole different level of media than we've ever seen before. And so I actually feel like you at Faster Skier are obviously deep in the weeds in cross-country skiing, and you care about each of us. And as much as the I appreciate the work that you all do and the lack of bias that I think that you strive for, you the fact that you care about us shows. And we are extremely appreciative of that. But you don't press us on the really tough issues and the really tough questions. And I think that that's going to change as our sport grows in profile and as it is, thanks to Keegan and Jesse uh, and what they've done, you know, in over the last month and, and what the entire success that we've had over the last decade has enabled us to do. And so it will be interesting to me. I think it will be, you know, as I'm leaving the sport and for, because I never was that successful, I didn't ever have to deal with that really intense media environment. But I think that, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I feel like it hasn't been hard because the people who are, invested in us on a day-to-day basis care about us uh and and so they're writing about us but they also want to they, they're not trying to get 
sensational news story out of us. Well, yeah, that, that might, what would, I mean, it's funny because I always feel like, what is the sensation? You know, the sensation would be clearly something super negative, like a positive doping test. As sensational as it got, I mean, I'm just sort of without having a bunch of data here in terms of like how the cross country world, at least in North American athletes, transpired for a couple of years. But like the biggest buzz was, oh my gosh, Noah Hoffman's training a thousand hours. He's bumping up. I mean, for me, I remember that being like getting emails. Hey, can you reach out to Noah? Looks like he did a five hour double pole. Call him about that. (laughs) Yeah, no, let me be clear that I'm not at all uh, saying that you and your colleagues aren't doing your jobs well. I really appreciate really appreciate the work that you do. And I think that it's really important. I think that... No, yeah, I get that. If you were trying, you know, if you're going to bring a cross-country ski story to the New York Times, not around the time of the Olympics, it's going to have to be something really notable, like, like a, you know, if not a positive doping test on our team, like talking about how the positive doping tests for, you know, Yohog and Sunbi or, and the whole, everything going on with Russia and the state sponsored doping, you know, get some, you know, really press us on how we feel about that. And, and not that you all haven't done that. I just think that because we know you personally, we have an easier time walking away and that we, yeah, I, I, I guess I, the the theme of what I'm trying to say is that I don't feel like we've had it hard at all when it comes to the media environment around the U.S. ski team and international cross-country skiing. No, I mean, sp- speaking of us, we're kind of tied because we need a certain amount of access from you guys, and we're sort of the only game in town. So there's that fine line of like not turning someone off, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because they can just decide never to talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> Which we've sort of experienced, but I mean, nothing that's not, you know, we can't live with. Um, so there was a little bit of buzz from your side in the fall and maybe late fall that if you weren't skiing up to the standards you had set for yourself during period one on the World Cup, that you would not be coming back for senior nationals in Anchorage to earn an Olympic spot. And that plan uh, sounds like it changed. And you did come back and you earned a spot. Can you talk a little bit about that decision to not want to come back to senior nationals and then deciding to do that? Yeah, it's a, it's true. I was When I left for period one, I felt like I was either going to be skiing back at the level that I have skied at previously that would have showed that, of course, I belong on the World Cup. And I'm looking at top 10s on the World Cup and top 10s at the Olympics and the way that I want to be skiing, or I was going to be done. And when things weren't going that way, and I finished period one in Toblock and flew home, there were four or five days where I thought I was done. And that just wasn't sitting super well with me. And I wanted to go well so I decided to go to US Nationals clearly I went there without a goal of making the Olympic team I went there because I wanted to go ski race a little bit more and finish on some different note than what I had currently finished on and absolutely I knew that I was reneging on my promise to not do that promise to myself and even that I was not following through on this bigger promise that I made myself years ago to walk away from the sport the moment I felt like I could no longer be best in the world. Because that's what I had done. I had trained last summer with the idea of lowering the volume and letting me absorb the thousand hours that I'd done before and seeing if that worked to get to that level that I wanted to be at, back on track to be best in the world on my best days. And it didn't work. And I had no more ideas. 
And I didn't believe that I was going to get back to that level after the end of period one. And so when I came home and I thought I was done, and then I decided, no, you know, I really do want to go ski race again. It was actually for pretty different reasons than I had been ski racing previously. It was because I wanted to experience a little bit more. And I, I did. I wanted to go to the Olympics. And I always said I didn't want to go to the Olympics for the sake of going to the Olympics. And I was wrong. I did. I wanted to go to the Olympics for the sake of going to the Olympics. And, you know, you can judge me and I can judge myself for not having a goal of winning a medal and for not trying to be best in the world anymore. And I, I would not have ever done that for years and years. But here I was halfway through the season, literally at that point, continuing my ski career meant two more weeks. All I had to do was go to Anchorage and ski for two more weeks. And then it was either I was going to get an opportunity to go to the Olympics and I could then at that point decide if I wanted to go to the Olympics or I was going to be done. And I decided, okay, I can do two more weeks. I, I, I'm going to allow myself. I'm going to stop being so uh, prideful and allow my, uh, admit that I was wrong in being so rigid about walking away the moment that I felt like it was no longer possible. And I'm going to go to the U.S. Nationals with humility and go there and try to ski fast and have fun. And I'm so glad that I did. And I'm so glad that I went to the Olympics. And the, the Olympics in Korea are going to be a defining moment of my career in rep looking back on the whole thing. Not because I skied amazingly. I didn't. I was not anywhere near that level. I was right where I had been all year long, which was not where I have been, you know, four years ago when I was having, you know, best in the world results. But the reason that the Korean Olympics are going to be so impactful for me when I look back on this whole thing is that I was there and I was appreciating the, everything that the sport had given to me over the last 15 years that I had never appreciated before. And to be there and to be part of that team that had the best success of any Olympic team ever from the U.S. for cross-country skiing and to be an, a part of this Olympics that was playing a huge positive role in international politics on the Korean Peninsula, and to be there as part of this U.S. delegation that was showing the world the human side of America and that we're not represented by the arrogance and belligerency of our leadership right now, to be there and be part of this group was so meaningful to me that the results seem completely irrelevant. And then to be able to write my script, write my finish two weeks later at home in Colon, everything worked out so perfectly. And I am so glad that I didn't, that I, that I didn't arrogantly stick to this word that I'd made, you know, to this promise that I'd made to walk away because I'm too prideful to come back and race the U.S. circuit or whatever it was that was that, that I was, you know, if I if I can't be best in the world and I don't want anything to do with it, whatever that mentality was, I'm so glad that I overcame it and didn't follow through on that because I it would have been a, such a different feeling if I had raced my last races in Tobolsk. Opportunities for domestic-based skiers to compete against U.S. internationally-based skiers. Are, are pretty rare. And so there's obviously spring series, but spring series has a little bit of an asterisk by it sometimes because some athletes are already shutting it down and domestic athletes are gunning to show themselves against the Noah Hoffmans, the Simi Hamiltons, the Andy Newells, the, on the guy's side, at least um, of the world, you, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but from your own perspective, has there been this like, gosh, I can't come back to the U.S. and compete against, you know, what happens if I get my butt whooped? It makes me look like I'm not worthy of being on the World Cup. Is that kind of the what you're battling with when, you know, people or when you think about contesting a domestic race? No, I don't think so. I think that that's the, that's the fear, right? Of course, that's not what anybody wants is for people, you know, you, you should have to come back and prove yourself 
I, you know, two things. First of all, I have been extremely fortunate throughout my career to get so many starts. Everything I wanted, basically, I got. And that was hugely important to me continuing with the sport and to, you know, to, to making my career. I'm so grateful that I got all of those spots and whether they were fair or not and whether I had, you know, whether I proved that I deserved them as much as I needed to, you know, maybe not. And I feel, I do, I can feel for the, for the domestic skiers who don't feel like they have the opportunity to even prove that they can ski with us or that they belong on the World Cup. And I think that we're finally we're doing a, a better job as a team because of, because of pressure that the whole community has put on the U.S. ski team of filling more start spots and bringing more people over, and that's paying off. I mean, Rosie Frankowski went and you know was what twenty first or twenty second in the Olympic thirty k, um, and that was a start that she never would have gotten previously. And so, I think that that we are showing that that guys need to be given more opportunities, and I I hope that that's changing. And I'm not going to lie, you know, like I said, I was the beneficiary of a whole lot of decisions that could have gone either way or at a whole lot of start spots. I was given everything I ever wanted and I'm incredibly lucky and it's part of my privilege and, and it, you know, it's part of what kept me in the sport. And I, I know, I know fair, you know, very well that not everyone is given those opportunities and that once you're not given those opportunities at the beginning, it's really hard to break through and to get them later on. You know, look at Scott Patterson for years, wasn't getting the World Cup spots he wanted. And now he's going out and getting 11th in the Olympics. And, you know, what was he at home and colon top 15 also or top 20? I mean, um, it's, you know, he's skiing he's skiing better than any American has distance skied since Freeman was top five at world champs. And so like, clearly that's a product of him having gotten more starts and finally breaking through and, and he should have gotten those opportunities earlier. And so like, yes, things have not been given, you know, have, have not been given out fairly. And I've been on the, uh, the positive side of that time and time again and I am incredibly grateful for that and I know that it's not fair um and all of that being said you know I always wanted to look forward and the reason that I wanted to stay over there and not to come back was because the world cup is you know of course is where we all want to be and if you're going to have that breakthrough day which you know, which I had a couple times in my career, those days where you just feel invincible. And I ended up with the fastest time in two different World Cup pursuits and second at U23 World Championships. Like, but you don't know when those days are going to come. And to go out and have one of those days on the Super Tour or at U.S. Nationals and not, you know, at maybe the Tour de Ski, um, and maybe you go win the U.S. Nationals by two minutes, but that's not the same as going and winning the World Cup. And it would be... I mean, because I didn't have control over when those days were going to come in the way that like Dario has managed to do by having three Olympic victories in three different games in the same distance and different techniques, you know, because I didn't have that kind of control, which almost nobody in the world does, you wanted every start opportunity you could possibly get so that when you had that day, you were there competing against the best in the world and you could have a career defining moment. And so that was why I wanted every opportunity I could. You know, like, for example, seeing uh, Scott have, and, and then Scott, I think, would admit this. I, I just read a quote from him over the weekend that, you know, he admittedly had a down, or, or I don't think he scored points in World Cup period one. And went to senior nationals. He won, I think, the 15K skate that you came in second in. Yes. And he went on to have a standout Olympics he had a great home and colon 50k skate and where does that come from you know it gives hope to a lot of folks to say my gosh that was probably un it'd be tough to predict that type of performance well i mean for sure because it was not only you know did he have a down period one but in his entire career he has never skied anywhere near the level that he did in all four olympic races and at home and colon right like that was 
that that wasn't just a you know the high point of this season. That was by far the high point of his career. And so right. you know, yes, I, like where does that breakthrough come from? And you know, and I hope that he can continue to build on that in future years. And I can speak from experience that that's really hard to do. And I I you know eagerly await watching him in the years to come and believe he can be one of the best distance skiers in the world if he can continue to build on those results. But but that's exactly right. And the only reason that we were able to see that breakthrough of his was because he happened to be in the right place. You know, he was at the Olympics and he, you know, he came back, you know, if he had chosen to gone to the, to the tour to ski and he hadn't have, you know, who knows whether he would have been in the top 50 on the overall. And if he and Patty had both not been in the top 50, maybe neither one of them get to come. Um, and then Scott's not there. And then maybe Scott is skiing top 15 in the world in February and March and nobody gets to see it. Right. And so that's why the right, you know, right. opportunities matter, and and because you never because you don't know when that breakthrough is going to come unless you have the control, like very few guys in the world do. You don't know when those when that when those results are going to come, and you've got to have the opportunities in order to make good on them. You know, from living the sport at this at the highest level for a decade, you know, what is it that gives those certain individuals that type of control? You know, and and they're far and few between. And maybe you can pinpoint some of the athletes that you believe have that kind of control. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know who's not on that list are the guys that are doing it all the time, but not necessarily doing it at the championships, like Claybo, like Sunbi. Um, you know, th- those guys are best skiers in the world. They then those are the guys I wanted to be. I wanted to be like them where day in and day out, you were amongst or the best skier in the world. But Sunbi in particular hasn't gotten it done, you know, at the international level in the, you know, relative to how he, or at, sorry, at the championships, relative to how he's done on the World Cup. Right. Um, he has been such a better World Cup skier than he has been Olympic or world champion skier. And so the guys that, the guys that I can't, you know, and, and the answer is I don't know how they do it. But the guys that I'm so impressed with, I mean, the two that stand out by far are Johan Olsen and Dario Colonia. Those two have managed to uh, come, have their best days be at the championships time and time again. And it is, uh, it is remarkable. And if I knew how they did it, I would have been a whole lot better of a ski racer. <laughs> You started podcasting maybe last spring or maybe in the summer, and it was kind of just a fall thing. Really, I think in August okay. was my first one. I really did like August to November. My God, you were prolific. <laughs> yes, I. I if not, <laughs> I did quite a few. I had fun with it. No, it's good. I mean, people really enjoy them. So, you did a you did a few. I think with Tiger Shaw. Luke Bodensteiner and the one with Dexter Payne, who's chairman. Yeah. Dexter. Yeah. Okay. I always forget their titles. So, you know, and those were great interviews in particular, you really kind of drilled down on a lot of really important questions that athletes wanted answered. And, you know, what was your, you know, as you walked away from those interviews, you know, what was your takeaway and, what would you want to see changed in terms of U.S. ski team dynamic culture, what have you? I mean, that's kind of a big umbrella there. Right. Well, so the the thing that I really delved into was why executive compensation at U.S. ski and snowboard is so high when there are, when the majority of U.S. ski and snowboard national team athletes are not funded, let alone paid. I mean, none of the athletes are paid, but most of them are not even funded. And so why is Tiger making $500,000 a year when you can't even afford to send World Cup athletes to the World Cup? And I thought they did a nice job of answering those questions as it relates to the system you know, that they operate in, which is uh, big money capitalism. And they are competing for talent with the likes of athletic directors at the big universities and the directors of the other big Olympic sports like USA swimming and USA track and field and how, you know, they need to attract top talent in order to run an elite world-class organization, you know, okay, fair enough. They didn't have, you know, that, that does that answer the question? Maybe. 
you know, it doesn't ask, it doesn't answer the question of, you know, can you really not find somebody who will do that job well for a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars a year? Um, you know, or, um, you know, why is you know, it doesn't answer the question of why is Tiger worth 10 times what the strength coaches are worth um, or the traveling cross-country ski coaches are worth. You know, I don't know their exact salaries, but it's it's going to be plus or minus 10 times. You know, maybe it's eight times, but still, it's, you know, you're telling me that we'd rather have Tiger than have eight Matt Wickhams? I don't know. Apparently, that's what you're telling me. Um <laughs> It's a lot of it's a lot of <laughs> It's a lot of whipcups, <laughs> um, and it doesn't really answer the question of you know why anybody that works for a nonprofit organization uh, should get a salary like that. What it does say, you know, what I learned was that Dexter and Tiger and Luke are not going to answer for all of American capitalism. And that's fair enough. It's, you know, it's not their job to answer for capitalism and the problems of capitalism and, you know, especially unregulated capitalism in America. But that's, you know, so I was left there feeling like, okay, they have a reason, but it doesn't answer a lot of questions and they don't have answers to the other questions. So anything, I mean, like, would you like to see anything specific implemented to, you know, maybe on the financial side or the wellness side to support athletes? Well, so let me point out first what I think the U.S. ski team does really well. And that is, I, I, I believe that their uh, sports medicine and sports science divisions are world class and that I was lucky to be a part of them when I went through all of my injury rehabs. Um, from my, both of my shoulder surgeries and both of my ankle surgeries and my posture project, working with this world-class team of physical therapists and their network of doctors and, uh, physician assistant, like that was all incredibly, uh, an incredible system to work through and help me recover faster than I ever could have hoped to. And, uh, it was, yeah, so that, that, that's, I was, I felt lucky to be a part of the U.S. ski team system when it came to those uh, setups. Um, in terms of what I would like to see changed, I mean, I think that it would take a full restructuring of the compensation structure of the U.S. ski team to value their low-level employees more than they do and to stop having... You know, and I know that in America, I mean, this is the thing, right? In American capitalism, a ratio of 10 to 1 executives to lowest level employees is not that big, right? I mean, I think that they, they say that like a normal healthy relationship is like 33 to 1 and that we get current CEOs and, you know, who are like 100 to 1 or more than their lowest paid employees. Um, maybe it's, you know, I think I don't, I don't know the numbers, but I know that 10 to 1 is not actually that high. But it, but when you talk about the dollar amounts and why you know why why he's worth half a million dollars a year compared to the coaches who are worth fifty thousand and the athletes who have to fundraise to get to the World Cup, um, there's not a good answer to those questions. And whether you could run an organization that was much more democratic and uh, and you know had a three to one pay ratio uh, from lowest paid to highest paid. And uh, maybe had a little bit more funding for the athletes, but had, I mean, way more staff loyalty. And I think that if you had more staff loyalty and more buy-in um, and, and commitment from the staff that you would have a healthier organization, I think that those are all things that could be addressed at the leadership level of the U.S. ski team. But um, I also think that it would take a complete revamping of the board and the structure and probably would, you know, almost definitely would involve some of the leadership leaving because their, you know, their compensation would go down. And, um, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe that we are underpaying tiger, like, you know, Dexter said in his interview with me and that we're lucky to have him and that without him in particular, the organization would fall apart. But I really don't believe in, you know, any 
Trumpism, Trumpism, that's what we, I don't believe in any Trumpism mentality where, you know, I can solve it. One person can solve it. One person is the answer. Um, and maybe, you know, so maybe I'm wrong that every person that could do that job is going to be worth at least 500,000 or more a year. And that that's just the, you know, the reality of the situation. And maybe it is structured as well as it possibly could be, but it sure doesn't seem, uh, like a good use of funds from the outside. What was your annual budget for training and traveling? You know, what did you have to raise? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, Rocky Mountain Nordic Angel covered all of my expenses to bring me up to U.S. Ski Team 18 level. So they, they've covered all of my race uh, travel, and I guess a little bit more even than 18 level. So they, they covered all expenses that were directly associated with uh, U.S. Ski Team and World Cup travel, uh, which included, you know, flights and room and board, um, as it, you know, so that was to the tune of plus or minus $20,000 a year throughout my career. Uh, and then on top of that, I, you know, needed to live, uh, outside of that or, you know, when I was not there. And so the majority of my funding for living came in, in kind support from the families that were putting me up, you know, for the, for the bulk of my career, it was, uh, Greg and Tony Adams in park city that gave me free rent and subsidized my food and were really allowed me to chase my dreams in the way that I did. Um, and so I think that that's an underappreciated, a part of my support, financial support structure is the in-kind support I got in living expenses and then other grants and organizations, uh, the national Nordic foundation, helped offset some of the Rocky Mountain Nordic Angel expenses. So um, any, any money that they gave made, uh, you know, meant less that Nordic Angel had to put in. Um, I got grants from the U.S. Ski Team organization, and I got grants from uh, the Aspen Valley Ski Club in partnership with uh, Mason Morris Realty and, in Aspen. And I got uh, grants from the USOC a couple of times in my career. And then I had sponsor dollars from ThoughtForms Builders and ModShoes, among with some other ones like Toco and Jolbo. Um, and so in total, I ended up, uh, I would, I think I ended up making about $50,000, you know, go, I, I ended up, uh, if you consider the, the in-kind support to be revenue and you consider the Nordic angel expenses that are just going straight to the U S ski team to be revenue. Then I ended up about $50,000 a year in revenue and anywhere between 40 and $50,000 a year in expenses. Okay. All right. Um, do you leave a a long answer to a short question? No, that's okay. And do you leave skiing with gas money in your account at this point? (laughs) I do. So I, uh, I'm very lucky to come out of skiing thanks to the incredible support of the community to come out of skiing with no debt and, uh, and enough money that I can take my time with this transition. Um, and, and, you know, and have gas money and food money for, you know, probably six months to a year. Okay. And, um, you know, what are your, plans next before the olympics i applied to brown university uh they have a program called uh resumed undergraduate education rue program that is designed for uh older non-traditional students and i spent monday uh two days ago uh touring brown and i attended three classes and it was a great experience, and it made me very excited to about the possibility of going to Brown. So I will find out in late April or early May if I will be in, if, you know, if, whether I get in or not. Um, because of the timeline, and because I didn't want to focus too much on applications while I was skiing, and because I'm my SAT and ACT scores have all expired. And I'm going to have to retake those for any program that's not designed for non-traditional students. Okay. So you do, you do not need to take those for the RUE program. Correct. So uh, because of all those things, uh, Brown is the only school that I've applied to so far. 
Um, and I may, there's a couple other programs that have late application deadlines that I may apply for uh, in the coming months also. But um, other than if I don't get into Brown or I choose not to go to Brown, um, I likely will spend a year uh, working and uh, retaking SATs and ACTs and applying to different schools. You know, there, I am not 100% sure that I want to return to school and go to university, but I, I think it's likely. So I am really open about all possibilities and am not being definitive about anything. And I'm trying to really live in the present right now. And the word that I'm using, and I use this in the essay that I wrote is I'm trying to savor the transition. And to me, that means being patient with it and, uh, and soaking, you know, soaking in the uncertainty and even the fear about the future. And when I get antsy and want to find something else to put the same passion into that I put into skiing for so long to really taking my time and making sure that that's what I actually want to do before I jump into that. Because it could be that I jump into something that's going to take another 15 years of my life. And I want to make sure that that's something that's making, that's fulfilling me and is making me happy. Okay. And so like Brayton Osgood didn't give you a pitch up at Dartmouth and say, look, you know, I'll talk to the admissions department and you help me coach the team. It'll be all good. <laughs> uh, Brayton did not, but I think part of that, not, not that he would have, but I, uh, I um, am looking for a little bit of separation from the ski community because the community is really small. And I think that I will probably come back to it someday but I really, uh, especially a school like Dartmouth, where the ski team is a big part of campus life, at least it would be, you know, it would be inextricably linked if I were to go there. Um, I think that I, I need a little bit of space right now um, to be able to, to clear the deck in the way that I want to. This is kind of a non sequitur. I should ask this question a bit ago, but I am curious, you know, what your thoughts on how the U S ski team helps support individual athletes who struggle with, you know, like for example, in your case, when you put in all those hours and you're expecting a certain outcome and all of a sudden that outcome isn't the desired outcome, you know, if it's a performance metric, right. Whether it's top 10 in the world or what have you, how do they or don't they support athletes who are struggling with that piece uh, which is more like the psychological piece, like, oh my gosh, I put in all this work and it's not happening right now. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I actually don't view that as the U.S. ski team's job. And I know that that's not true for all athletes, but I'm, I was really lucky to have two coaches that were 100% invested in and supportive of me throughout my career that were not linked to the U.S. ski team. You know, the John Callahan and Zach Caldwell were... Mm -hmm only concerned about my best interest and to have those people be different than the people who are deciding team nominations and deciding start rights was really important to me because I knew that if I did struggle that they would still be there for me and that they wouldn't be pressured or feel like they had to cut me from the team and then if they cut me from the team then they weren't going to be able to support me anymore and weren't going to be there and I know that you know Jesse and Liz who have worked with U.S. ski team coaches throughout their careers have been able to do that very successfully but I was really glad that my coaches were not on the U.S. ski team staff and that they were advocates for me in my training but also advocates for me when it came to U.S. ski team nominations and start rights and that they were able to go to bat for me in terms of talking to the U.S. ski team because I think that having an advocate you know having a lobbyist is really important um, and some athletes are able to do that themselves and some athletes like Jesse are simply able to transcend that where it you know to get to the point where it doesn't matter because she's got you know because she's a no-brainer in every start right in every decision of course it doesn't matter but there are times, and I'm sure that Jesse will experience this at times in her life too, where you really need somebody who's there unconditionally for you. And so 
I don't view it, I don't know that those can be one and the same, at least not for me, where the person who has to make the decision can also be your support structure. Um, and I don't think that they necessarily should be. And so I don't, so I don't, to answer your, yeah, direct answer to your question is like, I don't know they do a great job of supporting athletes when they're having poor results, but I'm also not sure that that is their job. Right. That's a good, that's good perspective, actually. I'll probably have a closing question, but the last, maybe the next to last question is, um, you know, Zach Caldwell is no, I mean, that guy is the ultimate technician. And, you know, I remember a few years back, I was doing a story for another outlet and I think Zach talked about ski flex for two hours. And I think I remember looking down at my watch and be like, Oh my gosh, wow. I'm on like two hours here. And I don't think we've gotten to these other questions. We're still talking about skis and flexing skis. So where were you on that spectrum in terms of like immersing yourself in the whole ski testing world and what skis are super perfect for you on any day? And if you were on one end of the spectrum and Zach is on the other, how do you, uh, how do you mesh that? Well, so first of all, absolutely. We're on opposite ends of the spectrum. I never wanted to do anything more than the bare minimum amount of work to get my ski fleet in order or to learn about my skis. I just never cared that much. I'm not interested in it. I want skis that work and I don't want to know anything more about it. I never wanted to know what wax was on my skis. I never, and I, I think that that was really uh, not, not helpful in my career. I think that I would have been a better athlete if I had been a better student of the sport across the board, which includes picking skis, waxing skis, learning technique, watching ski racing, being invested in international skiing, knowing how other athletes are doing. I think if I had been a more invested in the sport in total and a better student of the sport that I would have been a better athlete and have had a better career. But I never was interested in those things. And so to ask how they meshed, I am just so incredibly lucky to have Zach because he was willing and very capable of taking care of most of the technical side with me and for me and telling me what I did need to know and what part I needed to be responsible for. And uh, without him, I would have been a complete disaster. And so I, you know, I'm so lucky that he is the best in the world at uh, picking and waxing and grinding skis as well as a amazing technique coach and a huge supporter and one of the, you know, one of the smartest people that I know. And, uh, I having him on my team was the huge part of the second half of my career when I was working with him. Okay. Anything else from Noah Hoffman? I think people are really going to miss you in the sport. You know, honest to say. Well, thank you. I'm going to miss the sport and I am not, you know, I don't know how far from the sport I'm going but I imagine that I will be that my relationship for this with the sport will be uh, up and down in the coming years in terms of the am amount of involvement I have. But um, you know, I'm just moving on uh, a little bit. But I, you know, I'm still a cross country skier, and um, I guess the one thing that you know we talked a lot about Zach. You know, the person who's been part of my career for way longer than Zach has been John Callahan, and I am so lucky. You know, John was an Olympian himself in 1992 in Albertville. He grew up in Aspen. He moved uh, to Park City to pursue his cross-country ski career, and then he stayed there as a computer programmer for a while after his ski career, and then he started coaching the Park City Junior Nordic Ski Team. And then coinciding with my motivational switch that happened at the end of my freshman year of high school when I didn't make junior nationals, John moved back to Aspen and took over the program director job for Nordic at the Aspen Valley Ski Club. And he started directing my motivation and turning it into results. And there is, you know, just because I was motivated did not mean that I was always going to be successful. And uh, John was able to, you know, to turn my motivation into actual progress. And he started writing my training plan my sophomore year of high school when I was 14 years old. And he's written it every, you know, he's written every training session 
from then until now, uh, 14 years later. So exactly half of my life I've been working with John and he's been a huge part of my career. And, and Zach has been the more public figure. He's more involved in the rest of the sport and he's who people think of more when they think of who I'm working right. with. But John has been there for longer than Zach and he has been an equally important part of my career. Well, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Hoffman Retirement Episode. 